Hello and welcome to All Things Small Business, brought to you by DAU. I'm Ken Karka, DAU Small Business Learning Director. This series is offered as a continuing dialogue between government, industry, and academia on acquisition-related issues that impact small businesses who support the critical defense industrial base. Let's join today's conversation. Welcome to All Things Small Business. I'm your host, Anthony Rotolo, and this is the show where acquisition and small business meet. We bring together business owners, contract experts, policymakers, and stakeholders, and we explore the issues facing small business and acquisition professionals as they work together to overcome challenges in a government and defense context. I'm joined today by one of my colleagues here at DAU. That's always an exciting prospect. Her name is Hallie Tremaine Balkin. She is an attorney and our learning director for other transactions. Hallie, welcome. Thank you, Anthony. I'm very excited to be here with you. I'm very happy to have you. This is a very exciting topic. It's on the lips of many people, so it's great to be able to cover it today. Let me tell people a little bit more about you. Hallie has over 12 years of experience in federal acquisition, agile contracting, and contract litigation. She joined DAU in May of 2020 to serve as our learning director for OTs. But previously, Hallie worked as associate counsel for Naval Information Warfare Systems Command. That's NAVWAR. While there, Hallie successfully led all NAVWAR headquarters other transaction awards from inception to contract. While working for the Navy Office of General Counsel, or the OGC, Hallie successfully defended over 30 contract bid protests. Hallie has provided OTA briefs and workshops to thousands of attendees across the U.S., as well as worldwide, while serving as the legal advisor to the NATO Nile program. Okay, I'm going to take a breath there, Hallie. That was a lot. I'm grateful to know that we have a very experienced person to speak with today. This should be very interesting today. Well, that was kind of a long introduction, but this subject of other transactions and other transaction authorities are new to many of us. Hallie, if you would, if you could just kind of level set the audience about what OTs are and what they are not. I want to begin there, just kind of understanding what they are. Absolutely. There is a lot of information flying around out there of what an OT is, what it is not. And my 30-second elevator pitch is this. Other transaction awards are contracts that are legally binding that allow us to reach vendors, companies, businesses that otherwise don't want to do business with us in a traditional context. So sometimes it's too expensive to work with us. We have the FAR and the DFARs, and there's a lot of rules, and that can get very expensive and administrative. And some of the vendors don't have the money to do that. Other vendors don't need our business. They have a large footprint in the private sector, so they don't necessarily need the government dollar anymore. And other transactions are one of these ways we can reach those vendors to get the best of the best of what we need for the warfighter. Is it also a time-consuming thing for certain vendors? Is that part of our process being unattractive aside from OTs? 
Yeah, it absolutely can be a time-consuming process. The cost accounting systems that are required to get a vendor up to speed to be able to play in that arena, as well as obtaining a DUNS number or a CAGE code can also take quite a bit of time as well. I first heard about other transactions a couple of years back while producing a corporate video. We have a video series that we do at DAU called Powerful Examples. And the story we were telling was about how our experimental agency, DIUX, was using OTs so that they could quickly bring Silicon Valley type of companies on board and to be able to do business with them so we could absorb this cutting edge technology that we otherwise might not have access to and might be falling behind technologically. So OTs became a tool that allowed us to kind of gain that lethal edge that we want to pursue. Absolutely. Reaching those vendors that otherwise won't necessarily sign up to be on a traditional FAR-based contract, we've seen benefits yielded from this you know, month after month when we see the awards that DOD is awarding. One of the most attractive features about an OT is that we can get the best of the best in a more expeditious manner. So by the end of the acquisition, we're not left with technology that's already obsolete or outdated. It allows us to remain at the forefront of the technology and keep up with the pace in a much faster way. Okay. Now, my question imply that there's some confusion about OTs? Do you Mm -hmm. spend time and take the trouble to tell people what they are not? Yes. Oftentimes I explain what an OT is by discussing what it is not. So it's not a traditional FAR-based contract. Procurement is one of those terms of art that means FAR-based. So in an NOT, uh, the FAR and the DFARs, the other applicable supplements don't apply. An OT is also not subject to Competition and Contracting Act, or SECA. The Bay Dole Act for patents doesn't apply. It's not a grant. It's not a cooperative agreement. It's not a CRADA. So all of these different constraints that could put it in one realm are inapplicable. It is, however, a binding contract where the two parties, the government and the vendor or the vendors, do have to mutually agree to the terms. So, you know, it kind of begs the question, the obvious assumption is, was it created to bypass the FAR? Andy, that comes up a lot. And the answer is absolutely not. Other transaction authority, OTA, was actually created about 18 years prior to the enactment of the FAR. So it was by no means a way to evade or get around those rules. But it's another tool in the acquisition toolbox to get the most innovative cutting edge technology and reach those vendors. Otherwise, that would be unattainable in a traditional construct. So it's been around a while. It's not exactly newfangled. It's just being discovered and it's a tool that's being exercised more and more now. More and more interest is being generated about it. Absolutely. OTA was actually utilized by NASA to get to the moon during the space race. But I think the reason that we're seeing it more utilized now by DOD is a direct result of the 2015 NDAA where Congress actually expanded the authority of how we could use it. And as I mentioned that the authority used to be allowed it for weapons or weapon systems. And the 2015 NDIA language now expanded that quite largely. So now the authority is allowed for any prototype project directly related to enhancing the mission effectiveness of military personnel 
and the supporting platforms, systems, components, or materials proposed to be acquired or developed, or to the improvement of those platforms, systems, components, or materials by the armed forces. So the aperture really opened up in such a way that it can be used for so many more things beyond just weapons or weapon systems. What I'm hearing in there is a flavor of things that are experimental. I heard the word prototype, mm-hmm. things that are very iterative. Agile was a word that came up in your curricula vitae. So it sounds like all this comes together as part of the purpose of the OTs. Absolutely. There are two different types of OTs. We have research OTs and prototype OTs. Research OTs really are concerned with actually proving the concept to see if that technology works. Whereas the prototype OT takes that flavor, but also intends to move on to some sort of production if and when they have a successful development of that prototype. So they come in these two flavors. That's another thing to keep in mind. So we've talked about OTs, what they are and aren't. We've talked about the FAR and why OTs provide an alternative. Now, OTs, though, aren't just this carte blanche thing. They are bound by rules themselves. What are the bounds of OTs? So the DOD has its own other transaction guide. It was published in November 2018, and there is a draft in the works to update this guide. But it's important to note that 11 of the agencies currently granted other transaction authority by Congress have published guidance to implement its authority. Also important to know that fiscal law applies. So the Anti-Deficiency Act, appropriation with color of money, bona fide need rule, and so forth, those all still apply to OTs. So a lot of the same constraints are in common. They have to be used within very similar frameworks. From a fiscal law perspective, absolutely yes. So we've talked about the what, let's talk about the who. Who can receive an OT award? Great question. So there are four conditions that allow a vendor or a company to receive an OT award. The first one is that there is at least one non-traditional defense contractor significantly participating. So what is a non-traditional defense contractor? We actually do have a definition for that. And that's a vendor who has received less than $50 million of federal contracts within the prior reporting year. The second condition is that all significant participants, other than the government, are small businesses or those non-traditional defense contractors. The third one is a more of a cost-sharing arrangement. So at least one-third of the total cost of the prototype will be paid out by funds other than the government. And this is where we see the consortium model come into play. The last condition is that the senior procurement executive, the SPE, determines that such exceptional circumstances justify the use of the transaction. Hallie, I picked up on a phrase in that explanation about how there's at least one non-traditional defense contractor participating to a significant extent in the prototype project. That significant extent sounds potentially something to be interpreted or vague. What is that? Yes, you're absolutely correct, Anthony. It is vaguely written and purposefully so. We don't have any sort of 51% rule or anything like that because it really is dependent on the actual prototype project. What might be a significant extent in one prototype might be completely different in the next. So as long as the agreements officer, 
the person who actually signs and evaluates the OT can justify that the significant extent is provided by a non-traditional, then it's probably okay. We just have to be able to justify that and rationalize it. For example, if you have an aircraft and let's say the F-35, just for fun, and there's one tiny widget that a non-traditional can create and put on that F-35 to give it all new capabilities, that one tiny widget could be justified as participating to a significant extent because without that widget, it would just be the F-35. Right. You've got a relatively smaller player bringing a tremendous value proposition because of that widget. Exactly. So it will always be contingent on the prototype project that we're actually focused on. Okay. It makes it a more inclusive environment. It's not just the the Boeings and the Northrop Grumman's who get to play. There are smaller companies coming into the mix. Absolutely. We've seen case after case of these non-traditionals who have never dreamed about working with the federal government because we are expensive to work with and we can be quite intimidating with all of our rules. But we're seeing a lot of these large businesses actually partner with these non-traditional contractors and bringing them into the mix to create projects and to innovate and improve in ways that we just haven't seen before. That's very exciting, which leads us to this idea of consortia, having a consortium. If you would define that for us, please. Well, Anthony, I will try. So a consortium is an association of two or more individuals, companies, organizations, or any sort of combination with the objective of participating in a common activity or pooling their resources for achieving a common goal. And the way that works with OTs is this. Essentially, the government pays money to the consortium and the consortium actually makes the award to members. Oftentimes, these consortia require membership fees to see what sort of requirements the government is posting out there. But there are some consortiums out there that don't require the membership to actually see what opportunities are available. But in order to be a party to that contract, they would have to be a member of the consortium prior to the award. So, Hallie, let's take that widget in the F-35. How do we know what we're looking for? How do we use OTs to research and find the kind of companies that can provide what we need? So conducting really thorough market intelligence is the best place to start. So given that these are non-traditional companies that we might not have ever heard of, we've never worked with before, oftentimes, how do we find them? There's lots of different ways to do that. Researching trade publications. There are conferences, conventions, seminars that are going on. We've seen crowdsourcing events work really well. Uh, Believe it or not, social media can be a really valuable tool to see what companies are doing out there. And oftentimes, it's also word of mouth. Get involved with a group or an organization that is in the sector you're targeting. Look for those widgets and where they're being developed and do that market intelligence. Conduct it in a way that we can discover who's out there and what they can bring to the table so we can partner with them and get that widget on the F-35. Now, does that link us back to research OTs or prototype OTs or both? Both. We absolutely want to conduct really thorough market intelligence because whether we are working in a research OT environment or a prototype OT environment, 
we want to find the right partners. So Hallie, let's say if you were an agreements officer, what would determine whether you take that consortium route or not? Very good question, Anthony. Determining whether a consortium is appropriate for your specific requirement depends on a couple of factors. First, do you and your team have hands-on OT experience? If you don't, it might be beneficial to gain some kind of expertise and that reduced learning curve from a team that's done it, for instance, in a consortium model. Uh, However, keep in mind that there is a percentage that you pay the consortium. That's how they do business. So that cost factor is also a consideration. Another factor might be the specific realm that you're looking into. For instance, if we're in the space environment, is there a space consortium out there that already has these non-traditionals, these large businesses, this pool of potential vendors that you can tap into in a more expeditious manner, vice doing all of the market intelligence and starting from scratch, so to speak. So that timeline really comes into play as well. I will say that there are a lot of consortia out there that have these resources that are ready to to execute, but oftentimes there's there's waiting timeframes. So a consortium that you are interested in working with might have so many projects already that they wouldn't be able to get to your project for say six months. And if you have expiring money, that also might be a consideration. And the last thing I want to mention is that in-house organic capability to award an OT. Do you have agreements officers with appropriate warrants? Do they have the training and the resources that they need to conduct that full-blown source selection from scratch? Um, it really just depends on the team, the comfort level, the time frame, the money. All of those different aspects would probably come into play if you were contemplating whether to go that route or not. It's really an it-depends answer. Like many things, there are many variables. Absolutely. Hallie, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that SICA does not apply. And that's something that is meant to create conditions of fairness in source selections. So how do you go about competition? Explain that process, how it's done in you know an equitable way. Yes. The standard in the OTA guide is that competitive procedures should be used to the maximum extent practicable. And like some of our previous conversations, that is purposefully vague. So what is the maximum extent in a certain circumstance? Well, it's going to depend on your requirement, because if we're talking about a $100,000 award, it might look very different in the competition aspect versus a $5 billion award. So the government team gets to craft what's appropriate. They get to select the factors, the considerations that are most important and maintaining that fairness. And of course, always use a common sense structure. We want to be fair, transparent, and ethical. We do not want to hide the ball. We want to always be as forthcoming with vendors as possible because we really are shifting the relationship. This really truly is a partnership where we want vendors to be encouraged. And even if they aren't selected for an award, be transparent about why. We're not trying to, you know, pick a vendor that we have pre-selected and 
try to make it seem like we conducted some sort of fair competition. That goes against every single tenet of OTA. And if we do an engagement practices like that, this authority can be taken away. Congress can take it away with the next iteration of the NDAA. But as long as we're fair, we're transparent, we're ethical, this process will continue to allow us to get the best of the best of what we need to be that and remain the most lethal military in the world. Yeah, it dispels that idea that something was wired to a certain vendor, I think is the phraseology I have heard. But the transparency shows that people were playing on an even playing ground as they competed for the award. Precisely, Anthony. And even though the FAR Part 6 or SICA does not apply to OTs, there still is a potential bid protest process that an unsuccessful vendor could invoke. And it's not as common. We are seeing GAO and the Court of Federal Claims dismiss more OT contracts than not, but there still are a few that GAO has exerted jurisdiction over, Oracle being that main one that we see referenced most frequently. So, Hallie, we've talked about research and prototype OTs, but there is a third type And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention it. What is that third kind of OT? So the production OT is a follow-on OT from a prototype, meaning if we successfully complete a prototype project and we gave advance notice, meaning we told everyone that we expected to move into production after that successful completion of the prototype we can actually move forward with that production without any further notice. So if the prototype is, let's just say $100,000, we gave advance notice, it successfully completes, we can move forward with a full-scale production without any further documentation, without any further publication of that. And that has huge applications because that can be something that can be scaled up and really yield pretty incredible benefits in a really, really fast way. Right. You could be prototyping some drone. It was a quick and smaller dollar value contract, but just seamlessly transition into production and scale, as you said. Absolutely. And without the bureaucratic, if you will, process of getting signatures and you know sending it up the chain, which often can be very time consuming, this OTA process, when we move from prototype to production, can happen sometimes within dates. So that really, really is attractive to both the government and the vendor because it lets us move so much faster than it otherwise might in a traditional sense. Right. And you're retaining the same sort of brain trust and team. You're just turning on the production switch and now scaling it, which has the enormous benefit of getting the end result products into the hands of warfighters that much faster. Exactly. And oftentimes when we have these success stories of why OTA is the best thing since sliced bread, folks really are talking about how quickly we can move. Uh, But I will say, Anthony, all of this in order for it to happen successfully does require the government plan really well. Um, I always joke that speed is a side effect, not the goal. Because if we don't plan and do that market intelligence and have the right team on the ground, it oftentimes will not be faster than a traditional FAR-based contract. Do OTs sometimes get misused or mischosen? 
seen folks try to explore the use of OTs when it's not appropriate because of the information they've heard or that they've received just isn't, let's just say, complete. If we're if we've been buying something on a FAR-based contract for 20 years, it wouldn't be appropriate to put on an OT contract unless there's some sort of innovation or improvement. Um, let's say something like uniforms. Let's say you are an agreements officer and you've been buying uniforms from the same vendor for 20 years and you can't stand it. They take so long, you want them faster, and you've heard OTs are the fix-all. Can you put that on an OT contract? Probably not. Without any sort of innovation, like um, let's say you want your uniforms to you know, disappear or yeah, make the or, person uh, disappear. Wearable devices and things like that. Yes, exactly. There has to be some sort of innovation, some sort of increased capability that makes it appropriate for a prototype or a research OT. And I think where where offices sometimes are getting it wrong is that they've heard OTs are fast and then it's you know the best way to get what you need. And that can be the case, but it has to still be appropriate. And we still have to follow the rules of what is appropriate for the subject of an OT. Has there been any kind of metric or rule of thumb or measurement on how much time OTs have saved? Like, is there a way to quantify the typical time savings? I know the Air Force has been issuing quite rapid awards with OTs, but I'd I'd be very hesitant to say of, of how long an OT should take because, again, it's always going to depend. Uh, we have seen very rapid prototyping type contracts come out of all of the services and the fourth estate DOD entities. Um, But again, it's going to depend on the complexity of the requirement, the team itself, because the team might not have experience or they might be really, really experienced like ACC, New Jersey, ACC, Orlando. uh, Those army offices are churning them out because they have such sophisticated teams working on them. But at the end of the day, it really will depend on how defined that requirement is already, the available availability of funding and resources, and also the market intelligence that's gone into the process to determine and kind of pinpoint which vendor or vendors to kind of communicate with. Excellent. Now, earlier, we spoke a little bit about what OTs are and what they are not. By extension, I wanted to offer you the opportunity to do a little bit of myth busting, if you will. There, I know there are common misconceptions. Are there some pet peeve things or myths that you would like to bust today about OTs? Oh, my goodness, Anthony. Well, my biggest pet peeve ever, and those who know me know this, is <laughs> when folks say OTAs because there's only one authority, there's only the other transaction authority. So it's actually other transactions that we award. So OTs. Um, (laughs) But there are some some misconceptions that have more substance. Um, We kind of glossed over this earlier um, that we hear all the time that OTA is new. And we know that it's not new. There's actually ties going back um, from the space race, but all the way back to the Air Corps Act in 1926. Um, But I think why we're hearing OTA over and over more frequently now in, in, in newer contexts is because of that NDAA language that Congress gave us to open the aperture of how we could utilize OTA. We also hear all the time that OTs allow me to go fast, and that's why we need to use it. And I know we, um, we've discussed that already today, but 
OTs can be, can take longer than the pr- traditional procurement process. Um, it just, it depends again on the planning, the team utilizing it. And Mr. Gertz has said in the past that if you're going to fail, fail fast. I think that's one of the beautiful aspects about OTs. We can try something. And if it's not working fast, if it's not working the way we want, let's fail fast and then move on to a more appropriate tool that we have available. We also touched on what the rules are for OTA. And I had a colleague once tell me that OTA was the death of Sika. And I kind of laughed at that uh, because Sika doesn't apply to OTA or to OTs that we award from that. But we still do have rules we have to follow. There still are fiscal constraints. We have to be fair. It's not a way to pick a vendor and then back up the documentation to justify it later. If we engage in practices like that, Congress will and probably should take that authority away from us. So we need to make sure that our workforce is trained up on how to use these OTs and use them in a legal manner. So it's not a magic bullet. What it is is another tool. And as we approach any tool, we have to understand, like we said at the beginning, what it is and what it isn't, what its purpose is. There's nothing worse than misusing a tool. That's how you hurt yourself. That's how, in this case, projects can go wrong. So this has been so helpful, Hallie. Do you have advice or guidance, tips, anything for people who are trying to use these or approach OTs? Yes. Well, my shameless self-promotion, take our DAU training. We have trained thousands of folks in the last couple of years, and we are opening more and more workshops and courses because we no longer have the constraints of more in-person kind of targeted training given our current COVID environment. Uh, So we have free training available for the DOD defense acquisition workforce. And we want to give this information to you because we want you to use it correctly. This is a tool that can yield so many benefits. And while it might not always be the right tool for a specific requirement, it could be the right tool for the next requirement. And the more you know, and the more hands-on experience you get with our simulated workshops that we offer, or with us connecting you with folks who have used it successfully, the better our defense workforce will be. So we have tools available for you. We have our community of practice, our COP, where we're constantly putting up resources, best practices, Q&A, and also keep an eye on what's happening in the news. We're seeing OTs make the Washington Post. Um, We're seeing that, you know, there's these really incredible applications coming from it. So Keep an eye on what's going on and communicate with your peers. A lot of these offices that are opening up OT shops are are learning really, really cool things of ways to do business and how to reach these non-traditionals and these small businesses. So keep communicating, keep networking and get all the information you can. Yeah, it's so like you said, it's in the air. It's in the press. There are rich resources at our disposal here at DAU. My guest today has been Hallie Balkin. She is the learning director for Other Transactions. Hallie, thank you very much for your time with us today. Thanks, Anthony. It was so much fun speaking to you about this and look forward to your next podcast. Likewise, Hallie, this has been tremendous fun. Hope to have you back sometime. Thanks, Anthony. I'd love it. All righty. Take care. 
This is Ken Karkoff once more. I want to thank our guests for participating in today's conversation. Your insights and perspectives will surely help our listeners. And an invitation to our listeners, if you'd like to participate as a guest in a future conversation, please reach out to me at kenneth.karkoff at dau.edu. Till next time, stay engaged and collaborate across your networks. Everyone's talents and skills are needed within the defense industrial base as we fulfill the national defense strategy together.